Welcome to a Progress City Extra, and happy October 1st. It's the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, is Jeff Crawford. Jeff, it's here. I know. I wish I was there, but, uh, you know, it's fun to watch everything uh, from afar and think about all the history of the 50th. I know. Uh, you, you know, you kind of just get used to things being how they are. And, you know, really all this year, looking back as we have this year, it's really gotten me into the spirit of things and seeing everybody come down for the event and everybody having such a good time and all the history stuff that's been going on on social media. It's, you know, it's really taken me back. That's right. And we will be celebrating in full next Tuesday when our official episode comes out. You know, Michael, I, we came up with this idea pretty immediately, but uh, I, I need to make Progress City extra music for the future. Uh, it's true. Yeah, this was a spur of the moment thing, but we need that uh, Dateline uh, Dateline Disney style, yeah. <laughs> style music. Uh, yeah, for our for breaking news, but uh, yeah, we just thought it would be fun. There's been a lot of talk on Twitter this morning about how Roy Disney was really the driving force in making Walt Disney World happen. Without him, it never would have happened. And I would probably, <laughs> I don't know what I would be doing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what any of us would have been doing with our lives. But it would have been a very different world we live in if not for Roy's stick to itiveness. That's right. And, uh, you know, it was something that he went above and beyond. He did not have to do, he chose to do. Uh, it seems it's just very inspiring uh, the effort he put into uh, making Walt Disney World happen. And, and again, we talk about that more in our full episode. But we thought it'd be fun to go back and look at a couple of interviews and one that you have not heard talking a little bit about Roy. Absolutely. Yeah, we have, you know, for our Patreon uh, supporters, we have occasionally put up extended versions of interviews for people. And of course, one of the people we talked to a lot was Frank Stanick. And, uh, you know, Frank had some Roy stories that didn't make it into our initial broadcast that, you know, we thought we'd like to share with you today. How long did it take for Wed to decide that they were going to go forward with the project after Walt passed? Well, the, the, the Wed didn't make that decision. That was Roy's decision. Um, oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, Roy decided. You know, it's it's kind of interesting. I guess you read a lot about the relationships between Walt and Roy and. You know, the, the the standard story is that Roy was there to support his brother, and his brother always had the crazy ideas, and Roy always had to find the money to make them happen, right? I mean, that's the standard short version. <laughs> and uh, But I do think that there was, certainly there was a true appreciation among the brothers for each other and what they did, and when Walt passed away, I, I I wasn't privy to 
Roy's decision making, but there was no question. It didn't take very long where Roy said we're going to move ahead with this project, and he and he became very active in making sure the project got built, and was active in many aspects of it that you would think he didn't need to be or shouldn't be or whatever, but he flew once we started construction. It was a monthly meeting in, in the field in Orlando, and Roy was on that in that meeting every month, oh, keeping wow. track of the progress, progress. He was over at WED looking at what they were thinking of. He was There's a photo that I was involved in of the meeting in the Florida conference room, which eventually I inherited as part of my office. Oh. And... I, I had I had Marvin's old office, and I was the keeper of the Florida conference room, and and so all the meetings were held in there. And um, we had a meeting on. Remember one time we had a meeting on Lake Buena Vista, and there was a discussion about what should we call Lake Buena Vista. It all all revolved around the lake, and. Uh, at the end, Roy Roy was the guy who said, "Let's name it Lake Buena Vista." Oh, interesting variations of that that were thrown out, but then Roy said, "No, Lake Buena Vista." So, you know, tied in with the studio being on Buena Vista Street, but and there was a lake there, so that became Lake <laughs> Buena Vista. And Roy made that decision in a meeting I sat in. So, you know, and everybody agreed at that time. So. That's that's interesting. I, it's interesting that he was so involved. Uh, you always think of him as, as you said, not being more being more the business side, not really being on the creative side. It's interesting that he really rolled up his sleeves and got in there. There's a trip that it's a long story, but we were making the Bonnerell beams in Tacoma, Washington, and transporting them to Orlando by rail car. And Joe Fowler was very much involved in this. John Wise, our chief engineer for Roger Brogy, is building the monorail. We all jump in the G1 to fly up to Tacoma, Washington. And it so happened, Roy wanted to go along and see what was going on. So his wife, Edna, had... Uh, relatives, I guess, in Seattle. So to get to Tacoma, we had to go to Seattle TCAT, they call it SeaTac, Seattle Tacoma Airport. And Roy brings her along, and Roy, Disney's youngest, well, at the time, I think it was his first son, Patrick. Um, uh -huh. So Patrick was about seven. So we all jump on the G1. It was the day after Thanksgiving. We fly up the coast to Seattle, and the day was one of those beautiful California fall days, winter days. You could see straight across the Pacific to Japan. It was so clear. <laughs> <laughs> we get to Seattle, and if you remember those little Abner cartoons with Joe Blitzvik with the cloud over his head, that's what Seattle looked like. 
<laughs> the sure. cloud over Seattle. Now, I have spent a lot of time on the company plant. I, you know, I knew the pilots well, so I happened to go up forward, and they point out to me that, you know, we're we're in a holding pattern here because we can't land at SeaTac because it's fogged in. And he says, look at all those planes down there. I mean, the fog was, as I found out later, the ceiling was like 500 feet. So the fog is not more than 500 feet off the ground. And so everything above it's clear, but we could see planes. There must have been a dozen aircraft just rotating in circles over Seattle looking. And then every (laughs) so often one would spin off out of that and go somewhere else, like to Portland or something like that. (laughs) The pilots point this out to me. And so they said, okay, so we're now being delayed, right? So we we got one problem. We had these meetings set up, so we're now being delayed. And we're only going up for the day for these meetings. So we got a a delay. Edna's getting worried that her relatives are waiting at the SeaTac airport. (laughs) She does, you know, this is before cell phones. (laughs) Sure, right. So so anyway, the pilots say, here's what we're going to do. Everett, which is the Boeing field north of Seattle, was clear. He says, we're going to land at Everett because Everett's clear. Boeing says we could land there. So we landed there. They rearranged all the, you know, the stewards working on all the car arrangements. So we get all the cars relocated from SeaTac to Everett. And we land the plane. And Joe Fowler says to me, he says, Frank, we're running late. I am going to go with the engineers. We're all going to go down to, to the meetings. In Tacoma, you've been there before, so I want you to take Roy and Patrick to SeaTac and meet her relatives, and then you and Roy, you drive Roy back down to the fabrication facility in Tacoma, and you know you'll be a little late, but that's okay. We need we got to have these meetings going. So, yes, sir, yes, sir, can do. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> what am I going to say, right? So, I've never been to Everett. I don't know Seattle. I know nothing except I know that <laughs> I-4 goes north-south. And <laughs> I only had to worry about being sure I was going in the right direction when I left the, the Everett airport. And so, I had to go south. And I said, okay, moss grows on the north side of trees. So, that was basically my... <laughs> My my uh, orientation, no problem. We drive. I drive out, drive down I four, get to the Seattle airport, which is south of Seattle. Pull up to the terminal, and Edna gets out with Patrick, and they meet her relatives, and everybody's happy, and all of that good stuff. And then Roy says, "Okay, let's go." And he and I get back in the car. We drive out, and now I got to get to Tacoma. Same thing, just get on I-4, go south, and I knew where to turn <laughs> off. Hope you find it. You didn't have GPS in, in the car at that time. No. So anyway, yeah. we're leaving the airport, and the 
interchange to to get onto the I four is not that far away. But there's a bunch of signs and you know this way that way the usual freeway type signs and I pull into the right lane and Roy says to me, "Are you sure you're going the right way?" <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> And, okay, so I say to him, uh, yes, sir, I've uh, been here before. I said, I, 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 I know this is the road. He said to me again, you sure about that? He says, I don't, I don't think this is the right way. I knew I was right, and I, there's no place to stop and have a discussion. <laughs> The car exactly. is moving right. 60 miles an hour. <laughs> so I turned to Roy and I politely, as best as I could say, I said, Sir, since I'm driving the car, I believe I'm going in the right direction. <laughs> 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 he didn't say anything. And we get on to the south, and he finally realizes at some point that we are heading south. And he takes out a cigar and starts smoking a cigar. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I thought, I'm saying to myself, oh, my God. I now have to have a discussion with Roy Disney on whether we're going in the right direction. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out how to tell him politely. I mean, I was going all this stuff going through my mind, you know. But Roy... He was a good man. He was a good man. So yeah, well, that's good because you know we don't hear too much about him, you know, and what you know what he was like uh, to work with. So it's it's interesting that you were able to have some dealings with him that uh, not a lot of people really had that chance. Well, yeah, and you know, I was probably twenty seven years old at the time. Oh, holy smokes! He's the chairman yeah. of the board of the company, and I have to I know where I'm going. <laughs> Trust me, Mr. Disney. I know where I'm going. But anyway, we we got there. The meetings were pretty much over. So, frankly, the, the good part of it, Roy was able to take a tour of the facilities, you know, because it was an interesting operation that we had engaged in there. And we saw how the beams were cast and so forth and the mechanics of it all and then we all got back in the cars and drove back to SeaTac because we got word that the pilots, Seattle opened up and, and um, the pilots were able to fly the plane from Everett to SeaTac and land there and we would meet everybody at SeaTac. And so we get to the terminal. It's now, it's winter, so it's dark. Mm -hmm. And... We're in the terminal, and the pilots come in and said, the airport's socked in again. There's no planes landing or taking off. But the ceiling is only 500 feet, and we figure that if we can get to the end of the runway, we should be able to take off and not have a problem. <laughs> and That's reassuring. Apparently, Roy and no Edna and did not want to spend the night. So, I'll tell you, it was so foggy that we held hands walking out to the aircraft. Oh, good grief. All, all eight of us or 
at that point. And he could not see very far. And so he held hands, got out to the airport, I got out to the plane, loaded up on the plane, then I went up front with the jump seat with the pilots because I was left in charge of the airplane. Joe Fowler said, Frank, you're in charge of the airplane. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> that was his other instructions. <laughs> so I, I go up, talk to the pilots, and they get on the radio, and they call the control tower, and they said, do you have ground radar because we cannot see the taxiway lights? which are blue, it would help us if you could guide us out the taxiway. And the guy comes back and he says, nobody is going to be landing, so why don't you, we'll get you on the runway and you can just taxi all the way down the runway to the other end. And we did that. <laughs> oh, wow. We did that. And I'll tell you, I, I was on that G1 for lots of times, and the pilots on this t this time, they locked the brakes, rev that engine up to wherever RPMs they needed to, and they popped the brakes, and that plane just went straight up, and as soon as it cleared 500 feet, it was a beautiful starlit sky. <laughs> <laughs> it's like taking off from a carrier or something. That's <laughs> it was. It was literally that. Matter of fact, it was literally that. That's exactly what happened. I mean, that thing. Those guys. They gave it everything that power held those brakes, and then just popped them, and that thing went. We were off the ground really quick. <laughs> Man, Roy must really not have wanted to stay with relatives that night. I. I, <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know what it was. But there was no question we weren't going to spend the night. We were going to get home. I'll tell you, though, I don't know if it was the uh, stress of the day, <laughs> but I ended up getting, I came down with the flu, and I came down with the flu on the way home. Oh, no. Whatever it took, two and a half, three-hour flight back from Seattle. When I got to the Burbank, I mean, I... I was not feeling really well at all. John John Wise had to had to drop me off at home. He he lived in Glendale as well, where I was living at the time, and he he drove me home, dropped me off, and I picked up my car the next day or two days later. I don't remember. <laughs> I couldn't even drive home. Oh wow! It really took it. <laughs> it's a stressful day in Seattle. It was, yeah. So, like, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was just, you know, the change change in climate or whatever, but I tell you, it was an interesting time, interesting day. But it was a good experience with Roy, and, but it just shows you that he was that active in knowing what was going on and um, and wanted to participate, and he was, you know, it was his decision to move ahead. Well, that trip sounded very uh, like one I would not want to be on, except for the monorail factory. Uh, <laughs> everything else sounded it's a really harrowing trip to the monorail factory. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, it's it's really touching hearing these people talk about Roy and how he was at this time, and and we also uh, some of you have heard our interview with Scott Gerard. He was also uh, involved in the company. 
doing landscape architecture, and he had some experiences with Roy as well. And there's and here's here's a funny story. One night we were replacing the, the two oak trees that um, that you see in many photographs on either side of the castle, you know, right. in the hub, uh, out near the you know the street or the hub street. But they're the, the two main. I mean, we we had done our best to find two match trees, and they both drown in that mess. And so we're replacing them just before opening, and. So the you know the the pub is paved and and uh, trees are planted and the lights are on and and uh, we're digging we're digging these trees up and it's two two thirty in the morning we're working by work light and we get these these trees out you know and as just as we're pulling the the tree out uh, I'm backing up to get away from what what I know is coming was is a stench. <laughs> oh no! Anaerobic stench mm, mm, mm. this this hole as this thing sucks these these trees out of the ground, and you can hear them. And uh, so I backed up. I backed up to the curb, and I stepped off the curb, and I bumped into something. I turned around, and here was Dick Nunes. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> on a, uh, with a golf cart, and sitting next to him. And the front seat is Roy. His, oh, wow. Oh, my and, goodness. Ed, and Edna's behind him. His wife, Edna's behind him. Now, this is 2.30 in the morning. And, <laughs> <laughs> and about that time, that tree comes out of the ground. Out it comes. And within a few seconds, that stench hits us, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Dick's waving his hand in front of his face and, and Roy grabs his nose. And I, I just I just remember seeing that image um, <laughs> of the chief financial officer of the company who had probably been part of the decision not to bring good soil in right. to, his, to reap the benefits of a, a financial decision that he'd probably been a part of. The karma payback <laughs> finally karma came payback. around. Yeah, yeah. You have to wonder what in the world Roy and especially Edna were doing out at two thirty in the morning, driving around. <laughs> oh, they uh, Roy was. Uh, you know, they'd fly in and and um, you know the, the radios. If 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 they flew in in the afternoon, he was going to be on the site that night. You couldn't keep him from it. <clears throat> he was was a wonderful guy. Wonderful guy. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and. Uh, he was just so motivated to to make sure that uh, that that the project got done and and following the construction and and um, uh, he was just a great great guy. Um, we and, and but, we we always like to hear stories about him because you you rarely do hear stories about him, but he was so important, very vitally important. And if you're interested, I can tell you another Roy story. Oh, absolutely. Just, well. A few, uh, probably a month or six weeks later, after this incident um, <laughs> with the trees, uh, Bill and I were in the office up there in the tree farm, and it was after construction had, had quit for the day. And the, the, it was amazing how once you, the, the equipment stopped running, you know, you're up there at the north end of the property, there, there wasn't a sound. It was just so quiet and peaceful. 
And Bill and I would always end the day, we'd, we'd spend the, the last hour and a half or two hours making the plans for the next day's work and making sure we had everything that we needed and crews were queued up and, you know, we're ready to hit the ground running at 6 or 6.30 in the morning. And uh, so we hear a, a car pull into the compound. We had gravel driveways and parking area there. So we hear this car pull in and, and then a few minutes later, we hear these feet shuffling on the wood deck outside and the trailer door open. And I'm, I'm sitting across the, the desks, faced each other and Bill's faced the, the door of the office. And I was facing toward Bill. I didn't see who came in. And so he, Bill looks up, I hear, we hear footsteps coming in through the office and Bill looks up and he goes, Hey, Roy, how are you? <laughs> I turn around and it's Roy Disney. And he's got on a pair of khakis and some boots and open collar shirt. And he says, um, come on in, Roy. He says, you know, Scotty, right? I go, oh yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, good to see you, Scott. And so Roy sat down in a folding chair next to me, a metal chair sitting next to me and I offered him my, my office chair, my desk chair. And he said, no, no, I got this. He said, he sat there. So we were talking, he, you know, they chit chat and Bill lived across the street. He, Bill lived in Bay Hill and he, he lived across the street from the Disney cottages there. And um, Roy and Edna's had one of those cottages that they, the company kept for them whenever they were in and out of town. So Bill and his wife, Jane, you know, they were on social gathering status with Roy and Edna when they were in town. So they were, they were very close friends. And um, so they had a little, little family chit chat. How's everybody? How's this? How's that? And finally, Roy said, look, he said, I, I don't want to bother you guys too long. He said, but um, I'm on my way to New York next week to get some money, enough money to finish this project. And he need to know how much more money, you know, you guys need for the, to finish the landscape. Because we need, you know, we need to finish this project and we're, we're going to finish it on time. And I want to make sure we've got enough money. So Bill, you know, we're, we've been thinking about how, how little, how much more we needed. I think our budget for that whole project at the time was 4.2 million, I think. Oh, wow. Just in landscape. And, um, which was a lot of money back then. Sure. And Bill said, you know, Roy, I think we could we could probably use another 450, 500,000. He says, "Now are you sure? You know, because I we can't go we can't I can't go back again." And Bill said, "No, I said I think I think 500,000. That's a number I seem to remember." He said, "I think 500,000 will do it." And I remember it like it was yesterday. Roy just said he, he leaned back in that chair, tipped that chair back, and he looked up at the ceiling and he he says, he says, I just gotta make sure we finish this project, Bill. He says, he said, I just don't know that I can face Walt. Mm. Wow. Um, wow. So he said, we we've got to finish this project. We are gonna finish it. And um so what he did, what he did is he went to New York and he borrowed some money on a short, what a medium term loan at a certain interest rate and, and I don't know if it was Chase Manhattan or who he borrowed the money from but first thing he did is he turned around and he loaned that money 
on shorter term loans at higher rates. Ah, brilliant. Ah. And when the bank found out, they were pretty upset. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. And they, you know, they wanted to call the loan and, 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 uh, he said, you know, they said, you know, you said you were going to use this money to finish the park. And he says, I am, I'm going to use every dime of it plus the added interest. Oh, wow. You know, finish the park and you're going to get your money. And, yeah. uh, that was the way that ended. It just, um, it never fails to amaze me when I read about, you know, the business, how he funded all this stuff. You know, just this pretty uneducated guy from the Midwest and just a genius, an absolute genius at working the system to fund all these things. Just down to earth, just salt of the earth kind of guy and um, level-headed. He's just, just a wonderful, wonderful guy. All right, folks, that wraps up this Progress City Radio Hour Extra. Michael, are you excited about Tuesday? Oh, I'm excited about Tuesday. And, you know, you said our 50th episode. This is only the first. That's right. Of first in a series of 50th. Uh, we've got a big episode coming up for you. It takes us from around, I'd say, 1965 to grand opening day in the end of October 1971. So, six years period. And uh, we just, we kind of skip from topic to topic of interesting things that happen in that period. We have some nice archival audio for you. We have some soundscapes that Jeff has put together that are very entertaining. And, uh, of course, we have Ron Miziker. Yes. Who you have to hear to believe his truly, tales. yes, truly. So stay tuned to this feed, and we look forward to joining you on Tuesday with a beginning of a celebration of Walt Disney World's fiftieth anniversary. Happy five zero, everyone.